Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having these geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week on the podcast, we are exploring the roundtable talk that is titled Prophetic Imagination in the Hebrew Bible and Society. This is a conversation with the author, scholar, and minister, Walter Brueggemann. You may be familiar with him as he is a prolific writer. I'm excited to highlight this particular roundtable talk here on the podcast because I'm getting ready to conduct a semester-long course on the geographical context of the prophets. I always make my graduate students read one of Brueggemann's small books that he wrote ages ago. It is called The Prophetic Imagination. And I use it because I think it is profound and entirely central to the understanding of the Israelite prophets. Now, there are many things we could talk about when it comes to the prophets. What are they? What their words meant? Why are they always so dramatic? We could also ask the question, are they predicting Jesus? You know, actually, I think Dr. Nicholas Shazer and I talked about the answer to that question way back in episode 13 of the Israel Bible podcast. Anyway, those are not today's topics. Today, we are talking about what Brueggemann thinks he is saying when he uses the phrase prophetic imagination because he continues to go back to that phrase in many of his writings. So what does that mean? And of course, this is a really good time for me to listen in and make sure that in the class I'm about to teach this fall, I'm actually teaching his ideas correctly. So let's start with the basics. What is prophetic imagination? Well, I began with the awareness uh, that uh, the prophets in uh, the Hebrew scriptures uh, basically speak in poetry, uh, which means it's a very imaginative utterance. Uh, And then uh, when I ask uh, what that poetry is doing, uh, what they are uh, obviously doing is uh, thinking outside the box of uh, what is conventional in uh, the political economic life of ancient Israel. So that gave me, on the one hand, the the notion of prophetic, and on the other hand, it gave me the notion of uh, imagination. So I came to the conclusion uh, that what those ancient prophets were doing were imagining the world as though God were a lively character and a real agent. And uh, that seemed to me to be in conflict with the uh, royal priestly tradition uh, that wanted to think that God was not a real character or a lively agent. So they were imagining otherwise. Uh, and it seems to me that uh, it's important uh, to recognize that at the center of the Bible uh, is this alternative imagination 
that pivots around the character of God. Okay, wait a second. What is this distinction between the prophets and the priests? Were these two segments of Israelite leaders going after two different things? Were they at odds with each other? Well, I am I am no special student of the priestly tradition, but I think that uh, it is uh, characteristic of the want of priestly traditions to want to, to domesticate God and uh, contain God either in uh, the liturgy or in the creed or in something like that, mm-hmm. whereas the uh, prophets uh, witness to the to the dangerous freedom of God uh, that cannot be contained that way. And uh, I think that uh, that uh, alternative is evident in First uh, uh, Kings 8 in the dedication of the temple, uh, where you get all this pageantry about bringing the Ark of the Presence into the temple, and then it's followed by this explanation, will God indeed uh, dwell in this house or anywhere else that you can design? So that mm-hmm. seemed to me to be... Uh, Uh, a way to think of the priestly tradition. At the core of the prophetic imagination is the way God's vision for a healthy society subverts traditional patterns of human thinking about power, money, and influence. Those are my words, not Brueggemann's. Take, for instance, the way Brueggemann opens his book with the example of Israel in Egypt. Egypt was the empire holding empire views of being in the world. But God called his people into an imaginative way of being that subverted the Egyptian social structure. One that, if you read Deuteronomy, meant the leaders were from among the people, not better than everyone else, but supposedly an example of how to live out God's instructions and do it well. God wants his people to be an alternative community, and that continues through the later prophets. And those prophets are calling out kings and the elite for falling back into empire mentalities and losing sight of God's version of being and living as an alternative community that takes care of the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. Brueggemann's book also specifies how part of the prophet's job is to criticize what is wrong in society, but also energize the people to catch God's imagination and exciting vision and then to pursue it. Along these lines, Brueggemann has another book out in a series that is called Understanding Biblical Themes that is simply called Peace. And he combines the concept of shalom with mishpat. So what is meant by combining these ideas for both the ancient and the modern world? Well, I I think uh, the goal is that uh, the economy should function in a way that uh, every person has guaranteed access uh, to enough resources to live a viable, safe life of dignity. Uh, and how we do that uh, is a big problem. Uh, but uh, there, as you know, there are many arguments now uh, that the year of uh, release, the year of debt cancellation, and the Jubilee year are the key factors uh, because what the conventional economy does 
is to create a debtor class that yeah. can never have a viable existence so that the cancellation of debt uh, becomes uh, the pivotal economic decision uh, that has to be made. And right now, as you may know, in the United States, the big the, the big question about debt has to do with uh, with college debt for students. Yes. People graduate from school with so much debt uh, that they never can see their way out of that. And you cannot build a viable economy mm-hmm. uh, with that many people hopelessly in debt. But if the if the test of shalom is the well-being of the most disadvantaged neighbor, uh, then we have some some clear guidance about that and some correction uh, of our uh, distortions of the notion of shalom, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How does the Sabbath help with this? Well, uh, uh, I, I continue to be instructed by uh, Jewish uh, thinking and practice about Sabbath, so I'm not really one I ought to be speaking back to you about Sabbath. Uh, but I, in, in our American economy, I understand the practice of Sabbath uh, to be a disciplined declaration uh, that my life is not defined by production and consumption and commoditization. Yes. And so the subtitle of my little book uh, is uh, is resistance uh, to the uh, commodity economy uh, and the practice and envisioning of a neighborly economy that is alternative uh, to the commodity economy. That's how my mind mm-hmm. works about it. Okay, but what about hope? Brueggemann also talks about Jeremiah as a poet of hope. Now, that might strike you as strange if you are accustomed to reading him as the weeping prophet. This hope can exist within history and within our time and place now. So how is that connected to Brueggemann's ideas about history makers? Who are they and how do they help configure hope? Well, I think the the history makers are uh, people who have uh, freedom and courage and imagination uh, to uh, configure and act out uh, socio-political economic arrangements in new alternative patterns. Uh, And I think uh, any society that flourishes uh, has people like that who are not uh, uh, in bondage Uh, to old practices and old policies. Hmm. Do you listen to that and think you might need a biblical example? Well, I do. And I would be curious what he chose to offer as an example. Well, uh, I I will tell you my uh, attempt to read the the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. Mm -hmm. And that is, if you take those, uh, let's see, it would be 47 chapters of the two books, I think. I think that's right. Almost one-third of those 47 chapters are devoted to Elisha and Elijah. Uh Uh, Uh And uh, what I think is that by putting those two uh, prophetic narratives at the center of the book, that the people that put First and Second Kings together meant to deconstruct royal power 
and to say that the Elijah and Elisha are the primal history makers uh, in the memory of uh, ancient Israel. Uh, and I think that uh, if, that, if that's true, then that means that we tend to misread First and Second Kings because we tend to be preoccupied with the royal timeline and all of that sort of thing, when in fact, I think that the, the sum of the narrative wants to say that's not where the action is. The action is in these two uh, inscrutable figures uh, that are uh, incredibly subversive about how they go about uh, restoring um, human community. Now, you would recognize that as a Christian, what, what I tend to do from there is to say that in the New Testament, uh, Jesus of Nazareth performs uh, the same sort of uh, phenomenon, which uh, really subverts uh, the established authorities uh, of his day. So it seems to me that's a that's a uh, a credible reading of First and Second Kings, which wants to turn our attention away from an over fascination uh, with the official office holder. This roundtable talk is titled Prophetic Imagination in the Hebrew Bible and Society, and it is a conversation between Dr. Gruber and Dr. Brueggemann. The conversation goes all over the place, as you can imagine, since they're covering Hebrew Bible and modern society. So they consider several different books that are written by Brueggemann, including one he wrote with his son, all about modern social policies and biblical theology. They also talk about reading the Hebrew Bible as Christian, at which point I just wanted to put this conversation next to the one with Amy Jill Levine and Mark Brettler, the one that I covered here on the podcast a few weeks ago. They'd be great conversation partners. So there's a lot to be gained by listening to the full conversation. So you can do that by going to the IsraelBibleCenter.com and choosing the Roundtable Talk menu. Thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. You will find helpful links in the show notes of this episode, including a link to sign up as a student for IBC. Then you will get access to the large collection of courses that can add up to a certificate in Jewish context and culture. You also have access to the large collection of roundtable talks that we have with world-renowned scholars. And I have to say thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. I'll see you here on Israel Bible Podcast next week.